You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 42. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Happy Thursday, guys. Welcome to another long-form episode of The Lively Show. Thank you guys so much for listening and sharing this with your friends. Because of you, The Lively Show has just surpassed 300,000 downloads as of yesterday afternoon. So thank you guys so much for sharing and for listening and for really taking the time out of your day. It's incredible, and I thank you guys so much. If I could give you a hug right now, I totally would. So let's get on to today's show. We're talking with Corbett Barr of Fizzle.co. For those who are not familiar with Corbett, Corbett is one of the founders of Fizzle.co, which is a online community and learning platform for business owners. I've been a member of Fizzle myself for the last several months, I want to say maybe around six months or so, and find it extremely helpful. And I always recommend it for new and established business owners. In fact, a lot of my friends have joined since hearing that I'm a part of it as well and getting so much out of it. So I highly recommend it. And I actually have a little thing that I'm sharing throughout this episode that can help you if you do decide to join Fizzle as well. I'll share more about that later in the episode, though. In this episode with Corbett, we're going to talk about his connection and fascination with lifestyle and career design. He is someone who started with a really traditional high-paying career in management consulting where he was traveling Monday through Friday, one of those commuter kind of guys that was working very, very hard nine to nine or whatever the crazy hours were for the first five years of his marriage, and then his decision to actually leave that world and join the startup venture capital world in the San Francisco Bay Area, and why he eventually took an eight-month sabbatical from work altogether to really reconnect with what is most true for him and how he's dramatically redesigned his career and his life since then with new eyes. This is a really challenging and awesome episode for all of us, whether we're small business owners or not. I know Mr. Lively, for example, is not a small business owner and I am, but we both have something to learn from this episode and we're actually challenging ourselves after listening to Corbett's advice and really looking at our own lives in a new way. So I encourage you to do the same. In addition, we're also going to talk about Corbett's thoughts and insights on how to deal with lifestyle design with children, productivity, and the effect it will have on our careers, positively or negatively. Let's go to the show. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Corbett. Thanks for having me, Jess. I'm so excited to introduce the ladies and the few gentlemen that are listening as well to you and what you're all about. So let's start with your background. Tell us how you got to where you are. Uh, let's see. I started out like a lot of people, I think, without any real sense of what I wanted to do with my life other than go to college, get a good job, and I don't know, buy a nice apartment or something like that. <laughs> And so I kind of just followed the path of least resistance, which was go to school, get a vague sort of generalized business degree, and then do my best at my job. And I actually worked my way through college. My parents were pretty poor growing up, and I didn't see any, I didn't know that you could like, you know, borrow money or anything. I kind of went to college on a whim, actually, at the last minute. What did you do while you were in school? Luckily, I just got an internship with the, uh, county government where I lived. And I started out filing records, basically. I was just a temp. Pretty quickly, they figured out that I had a lot of interest in computer skills and things. You know, I started out filing records. Next thing I knew, I was helping the training department at the sheriff's office reorganize the way that they, 
uh, you know, do their data and and handle their records and things. It sort of worked my way up and ended up becoming the information systems coordinator for the police departments in the county where I worked, and I got to work on a bunch of cool projects. So, wait, while you were in college? While I was in college, so yeah, so I worked full time, forty hours a week, and went to college. So I ended up taking five years to finish school. Wow, how did you get this classes done at the same time? Uh, I fell asleep in class a lot. <laughs> And um, I had to take classes, basically, I took the 7 a.m., the 8 a.m. classes, and then I would take evening classes, you know, 5, 6, 7 p.m., and I just worked it out, fit it in however I could. Occasionally, you know, I'd have something to do during the day, and my bosses were always very accommodating about that, but it was rough, to be honest, and I feel like I got more from the job than I did from college because I was just going to a commuter school, you know, locally where I lived. And I don't really look fondly on my college experience. It was just something that I felt like I had to check off so that I had the paper so I could get a better job. So what do you think that whole experience of being full-time with school and work at the same time, how did that change you as a person? Um, I think I, I felt sort of blue collar, you know, just because that's how I grew up. And that was just sort of an extension that I guess I kind of had one foot in the, I got to work hard, you know, and do my thing. And another foot in the, I'm going to be academic so that I can hopefully get a better job. And it just taught me a, a good solid work ethic, I guess. But it also, I think, helped me to get to a burnout point with work sooner than I might have otherwise. And I look at that as a really good thing because it's changed my life very dramatically, getting to that burnout point. Before I finished college, I actually transferred to a semiconductor manufacturer in, again, where I lived. I became a software developer. I always had an interest in that, and they taught me how to write code, which was cool. And then as soon as I graduated, I started looking around, and this was around the time that the uh, last internet bubble was happening. And so I looked around and I saw that there were all kinds of really interesting jobs happening. There were startups. There was a lot of money being made and a lot of young people doing very well. And I decided I wanted to break free. I still lived in the town that I grew up in at this point. And so I decided I wanted to break out. And I started looking at jobs in other places. And I found a consulting firm. And this is something you're probably familiar with having come from Chicago. There's a lot of consultants there, right? And the firm that I worked for actually was based out of Chicago. And so I got a job with a management consulting firm, a Fortune 500 consulting firm, basically helping massive corporations structure these big technology problems and working on data warehousing and other things like that. And the cool thing was it helped me to get to see the world a little bit because we had an office in San Francisco and Chicago. Was it Accenture? It wasn't, but it was a spin-out from some people who worked at Accenture, some partners at Accenture. They formed a little boutique firm called Diamond Management Technology Consultants. So I got to see the world. I got to see the inside of massive Fortune 500 companies, 100,000-person companies. And I also got to learn what real workaholism is because I would fly out on Sunday nights often. They would send me somewhere like Houston. In fact, I worked at Enron for a while before they collapsed. (laughs) Did you have any idea of what was going on underneath everything? No, although it was a little shifty. I mean, the ideas that they had there were very much moving a lot of money around on paper, and it was kind of hard to see exactly how things were working. But we were building a trading system for them so that people could trade commodities like gas. So, you know, it was interesting. And then I got to travel around, but I would fly out on Sunday, and I was engaged at the time. I would fly out on Sunday. And I would arrive, start work right away, Monday morning, and then we would work basically from 9 a.m. We would have dinner at the office. We would have a team meeting at like 9 p.m. We would end up packing up at 10 or 11, slog back to the hotel, 
sometimes call ahead to the hotel bar and have them hold a spot for us right before they close so we could have a cocktail to hopefully put ourselves to sleep after this insane day and then wake up the next morning at eight or whatever and, and do it all over again and then fly home on Friday nights and see my wife. And I did that for five years. And eventually it was just too much. And eventually, <laughs> five years is a long time. But there are a lot of people that do that. I mean, there are these companies like Accenture and Deloitte and PwC and whatever there are you know, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people that do that sort of job. And it's great because you do earn more than if you worked a, a regular industry job. But you know, they keep dangling this carrot in front of you that is partnership. You know, If you work hard enough and long enough after maybe 10 years or something, you'll make partner. But then you see the partners and you realize that they don't see their families. They have to travel to two places a week instead of one or sometimes three or something. And they're just so obsessed with their career that it doesn't seem like they have any semblance of a life. Finally, eventually, my wife and I were just like, this is no life. And my wife especially was like, you know, this is no life. you leaving me behind every week. And we just constantly felt like we were waiting for something instead of living our lives. Yeah. So it sounds like you guys were married for the first five years while you were gone, Monday through Friday. Totally. Yep. Absolutely. And my, my wife and I actually met in high school, and we've been together ever since. But she went away to college in a different place, and uh, I ended up working this job, as I said, for five years where I traveled. So we had some time apart, but we've been together for over 20 years now. Oh, that's incredible. So what did you guys learn as a, as a couple with that time and schedule? We learned what we didn't want. We learned that we could do it. You know, we could do it for short periods of time. And that was a good thing. We also together sort of got to live in, uh, you know, she spent a lot of time with me in Houston when I was there. We lived in Chicago, actually, for quite a while. Eventually, I had her move out when I was on one of those projects. She moved out to, to stay with me. But she also felt like her career was kind of on hold because of mine. And it wasn't really fair. You know, even though I was making more, we were really sacrificing quality of life living our lives and her ability to settle in somewhere and start her career. She's an artist, a painter. Eventually, while we were in Chicago working on this project I was working on, she started applying to grad school for painting. She's a fine artist. She got into a number of places around the country, and she got in in San Francisco. And this was a place that we always loved to visit. And we had romanticized living here for some reason, and we had a chance. And so we decided she was going to go here. But I knew that I didn't want to do that consulting anymore, where I was traveling so much. And so I found another consulting firm that was looking to open an office in San Francisco. And I got to be the first person here, and that was pretty cool. And I was staffed locally for a while. But after we moved here, <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't long before I caught the entrepreneurial bug. Yeah, it's pretty much a rampant disease out there. Right, exactly. Everyone here is working on a startup. And I was just connecting up with former friends and colleagues, just trying to connect up and meet some people in town. And I ran into an old friend, somebody I'd worked with, who had this idea for, for a new startup. And we started talking about it. And I ended up not lasting in that, that other job that I took for more than about nine months before I joined him as a co-founder. And we did the full crazy Silicon Valley startup thing. And what did you learn from that experience? I learned a lot because we, first of all, uh, you know, built a software prototype and shopped it around to venture capitalists for about a year. And we were living on savings at the time. In fact, we were paying for office space and we were paying for one other software developer and we were living on savings. And I learned a lot about the stress involved in starting a business. And I wasn't prepared for that. And I don't think people really talk about this much. But 
when I first started that business, there was debilitating stress after, I'd say about nine months or so, after being rejected 30 or 40 times by venture capitalists, after spending 16 hours a day working on this software idea with my uh, co-founder, and after watching my savings dwindle, I ended up having panic disorder for a while, which I had never experienced before. And if you've never had it before, the first time, it legitimately feels like you're having physical problems. In fact, I think it manifests in physical problems. And I ended up going to the hospital because of it. And I had insomnia for the first time in my life and just a bunch of issues. And so here I was (laughs) thinking it's going to get better. (laughs) Yeah, thinking my life was going to get better and that I was living the entrepreneurial dream. But at the same time, you know, the doctors are telling me, you got to learn to manage your stress and, and chill out or this is going to shorten your life. And I also learned, you know, that Eventually, I, we raised money. We raised $3 million from venture capitalists, and we built an office. We had 10 employees. We had a board of directors, advisors, all that kind of stuff. So I also learned that how you build your business has a big impact on how you feel about it and what you're able to do with your life. Because here I was, an entrepreneur, but I had the weight of all of these different people, not to mention customers and the product, but the weight of all of these other people, investors and advisors and employees and everything on my shoulders. And I felt like I had less control over my life in that situation than I did as a consultant, which really opened my eyes. And, you know, I I think I had just jumped into entrepreneurship without really thinking about it because I had this idea in the back of my head for some reason. I don't know why, but I always felt like I would never really be satisfied in life unless I saw if I had what it took to build a business for some reason. It was just ingrained in me. (laughs) I, I sort of had what it took, until the financial collapse happened in 2008 and we weren't able to raise enough money to keep the team around. Things had been going sideways. This was three years into it. My co-founder and I were sort of at odds about the future of the company and I was stressed out and not really interested in living off of savings again, at least for this business, because of what I had already done. And so my wife and I just decided to hit the reset button and take a time out and take a step back before I jumped into the next thing. What was the next thing? Well, the next thing was, here I am, I guess at the time I'm in my early 30s. And as I said, I had worked through college. So I started at 18 and I'd worked jobs before that as well. So here I am, maybe 15 years of work experience in my early 30s. And I'd never really taken more than a week's vacation, you know, never did a gap year, never did a long extended trip in Europe or whatever. I just decided it was in my best interest to take some time instead of jumping into the next thing because I had gone down these different paths. You know, I had I had the ultimate management consulting job. This is the sort of thing that people who get MBAs from MIT and Harvard end up working in. And I had this without really going to much of a college. And then I was an entrepreneur and we raised venture capital and so many people dream of that. And yet both of those things left me stressed out and empty. So we decided to take a sabbatical. And my wife and I, packed up our car, including our dog, and set off on a road trip sabbatical to Mexico for what ended up being over eight months. Really? That's incredible. That actually reminds me of, we had Noah Kagan on a while back, and he talked about after, I think it was after Facebook firing or something, he took a sabbatical to really kind of figure things out. So what did you learn about yourself in that eight months? Well, I guess I thought initially that we would go down there, I would decompress, and then I would come up with another software idea that I would eventually shop around to investors, but that I would just be more in control of the situation and more aware of how I was building the company. But what happened was we were down there and we kept meeting people that 
we didn't know existed until we were down there. These were people who weren't rich, they weren't retired, but they had figured out ways to put their life first and to make their careers work around their lives so that they could live in a foreign country either for you know a very extended period of time. Some people were just traveling around the world. Some people were living in Mexico every year, maybe for the winter or something like that. And there wasn't necessarily one specific kind of career that these people had, but they all had that thing in common where they just had figured out ways to put their lives first and to make their careers work around their lives. And I was floored by this idea because I, I thought that either you know you climbed your way up the corporate ladder as fast as you could or you were an entrepreneur and you swung for the fences trying to make a bunch of cash so that you could sort of retire early or have the ability to do whatever it is you wanted with your life. And these people were proving that there was a third way, which was to do your career, but also live your life at the same time. And so I started a blog basically to chronicle our trip and to tell the stories of these people that we were meeting and then also to start asking myself questions in public about the nature of life and career and the balance between the two and to see if other people were having interesting ideas about it and to find out how people were balancing their lives and career in a more healthy way. And so I started a blog a couple of months into that trip and this was in early 2009. That's when I started my blog too. Oh, really? Yeah, January 15th of 2009. Mine was March 15th, so it was two months <laughs> after you. But wait, so I just have to ask, is this during like the height of the four-hour work week Tim Ferriss craze? Is this all these people that are doing that kind of lifestyle, or is this before or after that? It was during. And at the time I started my blog, I hadn't read any books, you know, any four-hour work week or any any other thing like that. And I think he wrote his book in 08 or something. But people that I was meeting on the road, they had no concept of that. A lot of times these were older people who had been doing this for 20 or 30 years, or they're younger people, but they had no concept of the four-hour work week. It hadn't exactly blown up, and it certainly hadn't created a network of people who were doing that, I think you know more so today. But once I started writing about it, I found that there were a whole lot of people interested in this because the financial world had collapsed. A lot of people were laid off. A lot of people had a wake-up call. Maybe they didn't lose their job, but friends of theirs did, and they just realized that that corporate life wasn't as stable as they thought. They started wondering, you know, what's the point of it all if, if I don't have that stability? And a couple of months in, people started sending me references to all of these other people like Tim Ferriss and others who were talking about this sort of stuff. So luckily, I found myself at the right place at the right time which was there was this groundswell of interest in lifestyle design or location independence or digital nomading or whatever you call it. And I was doing it myself and trying to figure things out and writing about it. And so by the end of that first year, my little blog that I had just started on a whim ended up attracting over half a million people within its first year. That's incredible. And actually, it's so funny, the timing of this, because it reminds me of what kind of happened to me as well. Started my blog in 2009, had been an entrepreneur for about 10 years by that point, and hadn't known any other entrepreneurs my own age. I only knew one six-year-old woman <laughs> who I knew in college that had her own business and had taken similar risks. But just like you, by going out there on the blog and sharing and helping people and them all knowing that I had this jewelry business at the time, they all started with the collapse of the you know economy and with the rise of online business becoming more and more doable. 
they all started coming to me for business advice. And that was actually the first way I was able to close my company in order to support myself and helping people full time. So I totally connect with this idea of the timing being right and stumbling into this whole world that you maybe didn't expect to find. Yeah. And also just really great things happening out of situations that at first don't appear so great, you know, because your back's up against the wall. You're willing to try things that you wouldn't otherwise because you're forced out of your comfort zone. To me, twice, uh, first when I left my consulting work for reasons that I didn't really get into, but they ended up kind of jerking me around to the point where I was like, I'm done with this. And, you know, second, when the when my startup couldn't continue, those two things both ended up just really being blessings in disguise or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I've heard Oprah talk about how the failures in our lives are actually there to help us move towards where we're meant to be. It's like a a self-navigating GPS that'll keep rerouting no matter how many times we take the wrong turn. It'll keep readjusting to get us to where we're supposed to be. Absolutely. Okay, so you failed at that, but the blog was doing well. So what happened from the blog point? So from the blog point, I started thinking a couple of things. I started thinking, hmm, this is interesting because I had always gone about building ideas for companies, starting with the idea first and then going to look for the audience. And here I was with this audience that just popped up out of nowhere, but not any ideas for a product yet. So I started wondering, could this blog thing and this approach of building an audience first, could I turn that into a business? And so I started looking around and at the time, you know, there were a lot of people saying you can't make money from blogging because some fairly high profile journalists had started blogs that gained big followings and they put some AdSense ads or something, you know, just some, some slapped <laughs> some basic text ads on their sidebar and they earned, you know, a few bucks and they concluded, therefore, that you can't earn money from blogging. And I kept looking deeper and deeper. And then I started to find people like Darren Rouse and Brian Clark and others who had really uh, built a, a thriving audience and then had figured out ways to create products for those people. And it was kind of an aha moment. And I decided to press on with it instead of going back to the drawing board and going the traditional, quote unquote, traditional startup route. I decided to keep going with it. And really, you know, you can connect the dots directly from that blog that I started in early 2009 to the business that I run now. It wasn't an overnight success. It ended up taking me about 18 months to get to the point where I was earning enough to support everything that we needed. But that was 18 months well invested because now the business that I run, I don't have any board of directors or investors or you know a big team of people that I hired in a rush to worry about. It's been very methodical, very bootstrapped, and I have all the freedom in the world. My wife and I, so since that first year, We've traveled extensively, and we actually return back to Mexico every winter now. We spend January, February, and March living in Mexico. We rent a place directly on the beach, and um, it's really our second home now. It's it's a great little village that we live in, and we get a, a great balance between our hustle-bustle city life here in San Francisco versus living in a small town, you know, tropical town. This will be our seventh year coming up. We're just making preparations now to go back in January. Do you have any plans to ever stop it, or is this a lifelong plan? I don't know. I mean, you know, things change with towns. Obviously, a big draw for us are the people that go there and the feel of the town and things like that. So the place that we go could change, but I don't imagine us stopping this habit we have of escaping for the winter. Not that California has horrible winters. Yeah. 
but still, it's just a really great way to go and reset and clear your head and just experience a slower pace of life. And it's something that we never, I guess, we kind of fantasized about doing that sort of thing when we were older. And here we were, you know, in our early to mid 30s able to do that. And it's been just fantastic. It's like you're a snowbird. <laughs> exactly. So do you own your home or your, your apartment or your house right now? What do you do with it when you're gone, logistically? We just rent our place out. You know, we live in a desirable neighborhood in San Francisco, so it's not hard to do. We basically just advertise the place, you know, six weeks or so before we're planning to leave. And every time we go, if if we're gone for a month or more, we just sublet our place and uh, we're able to do that. And it, it makes a huge difference, you know, and we've had no problems doing it. We've always found wonderful people who are relocating here or, you know, just remodeling their house in town or something like that. And it's just worked out so far. And that's another thing, you know, I couldn't have imagined. It feels weird at first to think about renting your place out with all of your furniture and things like that. But once you do it, it forces a couple of things. One is it's forces us to think more about living minimally because, you know, once or twice a year, we pack up all of our personal effects and just leave our furniture behind essentially. And, you know, that gets tiresome after a while. So we've kind of pared down everything and that's felt really great to do that. And then also it just makes you feel less permanent about your living situation. And I think that's been good as well to be able to just move somewhere and live in a new place and, and feel comfortable with it. That's been great. Have you liked owning while doing this or do you wish that you didn't even have the commitment to owning a place? Well, we rent our place in San Francisco here. Okay. But, you know, San Francisco is the kind of place that you get locked into renting. It's not as if we could give up our apartment and then return to it just because rents go up every year. And, and it took us a year to find this place because of the neighborhood we live in. In that regard, I think it's a lot like owning just in terms of the sense of we've been here for seven and a half years. And we don't mind, actually. It, it is a little bit of a pain, but just to have that duality of, you know, living somewhere else for a while, but then having a home base here in San Francisco where we live for, you know, usually about seven months out of the year, it's great to feel like you do have roots somewhere. We've known a lot of people from traveling, not just in Mexico, but we've been all throughout Europe and we spent five weeks in Italy last year. We've met a lot of people who are much more nomadic. There are a lot of people who travel indefinitely and just spend a week here and a week there, a month here, a month there, that sort of thing. I can do that for a while, but I do like that duality of having a home base at the same time. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. I love my home and I love the idea of having those roots, but it is kind of exciting to think about that idea of living away for a while as well. A lot of my listeners have children. How feasible do you think this is for people that have kids? I think you can do whatever you want with your life and you don't have to take patterns from other people as gospel. There are all kinds of people living all kinds of unique ways. And we have a number of friends who, as I said, have been living in Mexico or traveling a lot for many, many years who have grown children now. In fact, we have a number of very close friends in Mexico who are around 30 or so who grew up living this dual life where they lived in Canada or the United States or something for a good portion of the year, but then for months in the winter, their parents would take them down to Mexico. And so a lot of these people that we know who are now adults, 
literally grew up in this little town that we live in for a portion of the year. So you can absolutely do it. It means there are some sacrifices and you have to worry about, you know, what does that do to your your kid or whatever. But I can tell you all of these people that we know are more down to earth and better adjusted than most people we know who grow up in the rat race their whole life because they got this other sense of what life is about. We've also met a lot of traveling families on sailboats and yachts and things like that. And sometimes they'll go for two years and they'll just travel around the world and then they'll settle in somewhere and and let their kid finish middle school and high school somewhere. You know, it kind of depends on what what age your kids are and, and what you want them to have. But I can just tell you from the people that I know, the 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 kids and the young adults I know that have lived this life, it just seems like it's so enriching to grow up with a sense of what the world is. And it seems like a a great supplement to a regular education. Absolutely. So what would you recommend for people who are considering something like this? What should they consider to know if it's right for them? I am always a fan of hedging your bets and giving something a try instead of jumping without a safety net. So figure out a way to take a month off and and go live somewhere, rent a place. You don't necessarily have to sublet your own place. You don't have to go full in and, and try to do it like you would if you were doing it every year. Just see if you enjoy living somewhere else for a month or if taking your kid out of school for a month feels right, you know, that sort of thing. In fact, that's what I do with businesses. A lot of times I try to have my foot on the next product before I take it off of the one that I was working on. Or if I hire someone, I like to bring them on in a temporary fashion at first to make sure that it's a good fit. And so I like to encourage people to do that. But, you know, the other thing is for any kind of life change, whether it's that you plan to live in a foreign country every year, or if you're just trying to radically change careers or something else about your life, this idea of getting away from your normal influences, you know, we all get sort of sucked into what we think is normal because of what everyone is doing around us and what our family and friends and colleagues and everyone else thinks about the world. And it's very hard to feel like a dramatic change in life is possible when you're constantly surrounded by the same. So getting away from that even for just a week, you know how you feel when you're on vacation and you have this like epiphany or something. But if you get away for even longer than that, it took me a month or so of being on the sabbatical to really clear my head and then to start to see my life in a radically different way. I just think it's the best way to start some sort of life change. And I love seeing people take time off. And the other thing is, you probably have more leverage and more ability than you think to get away from your current job without jeopardizing being able to come back and things like that. I think a lot of people are just afraid to ask. And if you do ask to take time off, whether it be unpaid or whatever, I think that a lot of people are more capable of doing that than they think. Yeah, we didn't know if Mr. Lively would get the ability to work remotely from his job. And he totally did. It was very lucky and fortunate, I would say, that it worked out, but he never would have known had he not asked. Exactly. And it can't necessarily, under the right circumstances and done in the right way, necessarily hurt. And actually, the four-hour work week, I believe he goes into in that book, ways you can help make that process easier Mm -hmm. for yourself if anyone's looking to learn a little bit more about that. Absolutely. Obviously, with teaching or certain things, it may not be as practical, but it's actually very fascinating that we're talking about this because this is definitely something Mr. Lively and I could consider now that he's working remotely already, we could totally move to some other place. And your job is portable. Yeah, I totally could as well. Yeah, it's interesting because I'm like renting in this place right now. And the idea of subleasing our rental might be a little more 
complicated, but it doesn't mean it isn't like you said, just asking, right? So I might say the resistance is like, oh, I can't do this. Well, I haven't even asked my landlord if that would be a possibility. Or like you said, just taking the hit and paying for two locations that month if we planned ahead of time for it. Yeah. And we ended up with a really great relationship with our landlord. And in the lease, as we signed it, it said, you know, absolutely no subletting. It said no pets as well. And here we are with with a dog. And uh, we've sublet our place, I think, eight or nine times now. And what I did was I just made sure that she understood that we're obligated for the monthly payment if for some reason somebody didn't pay or whatever. And we'll find the people. And I did full-on reference checks, credit checks, all that kind of stuff on the people that we found, sent her all the paperwork, and just made it as easy as possible as it could be for her to say yes. That's really great advice. And hopefully other people can use that too, because I'm just thinking that was probably my thing that I was like sticking on. And I guess now the winter here is supposedly pretty decent. Maybe February is kind of bad here (laughs) to pick the months. Maybe we leave in the summer when it's like 100 degrees every day. (laughs) That's true. What have you learned about yourself besides so you've realized you need to get away? Does your output of your work shift down during that period or not? Um, I don't think so. I don't know. It's, it's hard to measure exactly. And I do spend a lot of time surfing when we're down there. It's a priority of mine and there's a good surf break in town. So I try to go, you know, five days a week or something. But I've also found that the more outdoor activities, the more exercise I get, the more creative I am and, you know, inspired I am to do good work. I feel like I work fewer hours, but they're more productive hours down there. The other issue, though, is that the internet is dodgy sometimes. That can be frustrating, especially if you're trying to podcast, you know, or something, or if you're trying to upload videos that you've shot. The program that I run has a lot of video training. And so I'm often shooting courses that end up having, you know, gigabytes upon gigabytes of data to upload. And sometimes I have to spend a few nights clicking the upload button and then waking up the next morning and realizing it didn't complete for one reason or another and then restarting it. So you just have to be patient. But (laughs) I think patience is a virtue. You know, you get so used to the instant gratification and everything just working up here. And then you go down there. Sometimes the water's out for a couple of days. Sometimes the internet's down. Sometimes the power goes down. There's all of these things that can happen. It's just great because you don't live with your smartphone in your hand 24 hours a day. It just teaches you to feel what real relationships are like with people and to be more introspective about yourself and your life. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. Here's a question. As you said that, I can imagine a bunch of people in the back of their minds thinking when you said they're not going to have their smartphones in their hands all the time. (laughs) Obviously, we know that that is a good thing. At the same time, there's probably that little fear sitting in the back of our minds going, will we accomplish as much if we take that time off? Will it hurt our career or our business in any way? Yes, it very well might hurt your career if you're gone, you know, because people might perceive you as being disengaged or something. Or, you know, you may end up leaving your career to pursue something else, and it might hurt it in that way. But for whatever damage you do to your career, and and by the way, it doesn't have to be that way. I'm just saying it may, it very well may. For any damage that you might do, I just think you're going to gain from a more multidimensional view of what life is. I mean, at the end of the day, is your life only about your career? For me, the answer is emphatically no. There's so much more to life than that. And I feel like I was on the path to just work, 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 work and climb my way up the ladder. And then at the end, as they say, realize that the ladder was leaned up against the wrong wall. And I'm just so glad that I I had the opportunity to reset and reimagine what my life could be. Let's talk a little bit about this program that has so many videos on it, because I love those videos. (laughs) 
Yeah, so uh, thank you. So I run a video training library and community for entrepreneurs and just people that are trying to become self-employed. It's called Fizzle, and it's been around for two years. We have about 1,350 active members, and these are people who, you know, the majority of them have jobs, at least part-time, if not full-time, and they're trying to build something on the side so that they can eventually, you know, work towards freedom or to work towards doing something that they actually care about. You know, that's the other piece. It's not just in my experience with management consulting and working in these big Fortune 500s, it wasn't just that they treated me crappy or everyone that worked there. It's not just that they treated them crappy either, but that I really, at the end of the day, didn't care about what I was doing for a living. And that's the worst thing. I mean, it's one thing to obsess about your career and make it the center of your life if you truly believe in what you're doing and you feel like you're making a difference and you're going to be satisfied with that outcome versus becoming obsessed with your career and realizing that you're helping some 100,000-person organization become incrementally more effective at making more profits, I don't know if that's really going to satisfy you at the end of your life. And so these are people in Fizzle who are either trying to work towards more freedom and better working conditions or towards doing something that they actually care about. And that keeps me fired up. You know, as I said, I started a blog five and a half years ago. And ever since, talking about, you know, different career options for people and ways to structure their career around their lives, I've just been obsessed with it because every time I see someone who has an idea and then works hard on it and a year or two or three years or however long it takes later, they've made this dramatic change and they just come alive with this idea that, oh my God, my career can be something that I feel good about and that I'm in control of. That is just fuel to the fire. And every time we're able to help someone do that, it just reaffirms my commitment to doing this. As far as Fizzle goes, guys, I've been a part of it for several months now, I think. It's been a while now, and I really, really enjoy it. There is a great community that is extremely powerful. I have a feeling that most people, especially if you're a beginning business owner, you're going to love the community. It's going to be awesome. But even as someone who's been around for many years like myself, I really like the libraries and the the videos that you have with the other awesome people like Leo Babauta from Zen Habits, Pat Flynn. We have a lively show guest, actually, in there, too. Who's that? You got Dana Schultz from Minimalist Baker. She's been on the show. Dana filmed a whole course about building a food blog, and it's just phenomenal. Dana and John, actually, her husband, they came out to San Francisco, and we filmed a full course on it. And then, interestingly, out of that, I don't know if you know Scott Dinsmore. Scott Dinsmore runs a site called Live Your Legend. He has a course in Fizzle as well. His wife, Chelsea, took Dana and John's food course over the past I don't know, she started maybe six months ago, and she has made incredible strides. In fact, in her first month of blogging, I think, if I recall, she had maybe 6,000 people come to her site in the first month after following what Dana and John taught. So I was pretty happy with that. That's incredible. Yeah, so it's a great resource. I know a lot of the people that are business owners might be wondering where they can get great advice and stuff beyond just, you know, Marie Forleo's videos or B-School that she has. I definitely think that Fizzle is a really great option. It's definitely much more male and female balanced or maybe even more male. So it's going to be a totally new world for a lot of you guys, but it could be extremely powerful. And the libraries, like I said, I really enjoy. I think you guys have done a great job. I've really liked them. And I think the way you guys teach your material is really powerful. Thanks, Jess. I appreciate that. 
actually, for anyone that is interested in joining it, we have a little something for them, right? If they want to. And I'm only saying this because I've been a member there for several months. So I can really say this from experience. Yeah, absolutely. So did we decide on the link? It's going to be fizzle.co slash the lively show. Absolutely. So if people go and sign up there, we have a $1 trial offer for them. So basically you get in and try it out for a dollar for your first month, see if it's right for you. If not, you're out of buck. If you want to continue, the uh, ongoing monthly membership price is $35. And that gets you access to hundreds of hours of video training, not just from me and the rest of the team, but as you said, from a bunch of guest experts. It gets you access to the community, to weekly coaching, all kinds of stuff in there. And um, you had a little something extra you wanted to add is right. Yeah. So if you go to the lively show slash, so this is an affiliate link. I'm only saying this, like I've said, I wouldn't normally have this on, but I am a member just by mentioning it to friends. They've all joined too. So there's an affiliate link. So I will get a kickback if you sign up through the lively show link. So I'd like to give you something back as well. If you use that slash the lively show to sign up, I will do an ask me anything for you. So if you send me a question with your confirmation email from Fizzle, so I can see that you joined with three sentences of your question, I'll respond in three sentences as well. And it could be business oriented. Or if you want me to check out your website and give you three sentences on what I suggest that could be better or changed, let me know. But send me that confirmation email you get from Fizzle. Just as a little thank you. I just think it's a really great resource that can be helpful for those that are business owners out there. Awesome. Let's go back to you now. So let's talk about the doubts or resistance. What have you had to face in your life? A couple of things. I mean, I would say self-doubt, which I think is something you probably hear all the time from people. Yeah, I would be more (laughs) curious on what that doubt looks like specifically or what has it looked like in your life. It's always internal. I just want to bring the voice to it so we know, oh, he struggles with that too. So do I. Exactly. So for me, the way that self-doubt manifests itself is just being unable to get anything done for days or weeks at a time, either because I'm in a horrible depression because I feel like I'm worthless and stupid for even thinking that I could do this in the first place, or because I'm having this analysis paralysis sort of moment where my mind keeps racing between, oh my God, yes, this is the greatest thing ever. It's going to be a huge success versus, oh no, that's stupid. I should really be trying this other idea because it's more me or it fits better or whatever. And going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth to the point where a couple of weeks can go by with really getting nothing done. In fact, this isn't just, you know, when I got started or whatever. I mean, literally the past couple of weeks up until this week, I was just down in this funk where I really didn't do anything aside from answer some emails. And there's all this stuff on my plate and all of these things that I know I could do to improve my business. And yet, for some reason, even though I've been an entrepreneur for nine years, I have a lot of things to be proud of, I still get mired in this, I really should be working on something else because I'm just not, I'm, I'm not cut out for this for some reason. And I, I don't know what that is. Actually, can I have a suggestion there? Did you know this is a little crazy? Did you know it was Mercury in retrograde for the last three weeks until this week? I did not. What does that mean? So I just found out about this because I was in one of those funks once and I put it out there on the social media and then everyone said, hey, Jess, it's Mercury in retrograde. And I was like, what is that? Hence a Google search immediately. So... Basically, you know, this is a little woo-woo or out there, but the astrologers out there will totally know what I'm talking about. And I would say this is the most commonly known thing, I think, of the astrology world, as far as I understand it, outside of that world that's really into it. But basically, there's three times a year for three weeks, the 
planet Mercury looks like it appears to our eye or to telescopes or something that it's going backwards. I don't think it actually is going backwards during that time. It just is rotating in this weird way that looks like it's going backwards, hence the retrograde. During that time, in an astrology sense, people always say it's a time of reflection. It's a time when a lot of things will go wrong. A lot of technology will start fritzing or plans will get canceled. Travel plans are always like an issue people have. And I just started to have it once like you, just a down phase and didn't want to do anything new because it's all about reflecting, tying up loose ends, this pause before creation. And then it passes and then you kind of feel better. And it's crazy. I now have had several times I don't pay attention too much to when they are, but I will sometimes go, man, things are just not clicking or, you know, technology is really breaking. And I'll, there's a site you can go to to say, is it Mercury in retrograde? And it says yes or no. I've actually accurately suspected it's Mercury in retrograde more than I've ever checked and it's not been. So it it may not have been your fault, Corbett. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I'm normally not super into woo-woo stuff, but it does say that it just ended on October 25th, this this last one. And uh, I am now thankfully feeling much better this week so far, at least. So who knows? So, you know, I, I would love to say that I have like some magic approach. You're the one with the frameworks, right? And you probably have some approach for getting out of a funk like that. I don't necessarily accept. First of all, I know that it will pass because it, it's happened dozens of times. And I know that it's really easy to talk yourself into feeling crazy things sometimes. The other thing is actually my business partner, Chase Reeves, does have a framework for this that he calls CEO and worker bee. And I love this one because all of us, if you're self-employed, you really have to have a couple of modes. I mean, you have a lot of different hats that you have to wear, but there are a couple of very specific modes that you have to operate in when you're building a business as one person. And the first one is CEO, and that's the guy that gets to have all of these big picture conversations or gal, whatever, about your business. You know, you get to question whether or not you're doing the right thing. You get to make big strategic plans, all that kind of stuff. And then there's the worker bee, and that's the person that just needs to put his or her head down and just get the work done, you know, because somebody has to do the work and it's going to have to be you if there's only one person in your business. The problem is that a lot of us try to straddle that or we try to stay in both modes. We try to be the CEO while we're getting the work done. And that allows you to pull your head up and start questioning things while you're working on it all the time. And it just creates this sort of herky-jerky, can't-get-anything-done approach. It's kind of also left brain, right brain. Switching between those brains is very exhausting if you do it multiple times a day. Yeah, absolutely. So the idea is just to sort of cordon off the time that you allow yourself to be CEO And then when you're being the worker bee, that's just dumb brain. Okay, I've got a task. I just need to do this task. I love that. Okay, so what would you tell someone who's just starting out on this journey? I would tell someone that there is absolutely zero reason why you can't succeed at changing your life as dramatically as you want to. It may seem impossible right now. You may be able to come up with a thousand reasons why you can't, but I've met enough people, I've traveled to enough places, I've started enough businesses, I've failed at enough things that I've seen people succeed who want to succeed. And it may take a lot of time, it may take five years or 10 years to get to where you want. But if you really want that thing, it's likely that it will be A, worth it when you get to the end of it, and B, very enjoyable along the way. Once you push yourself out of that comfort zone or once something else pushes you out of that comfort zone, that journey towards changing your life is 
incredible. And it gives you something to look forward to when you wake up every day. And there's no reason why you can't change your life. Whatever it is, people have this little voice in the back of their head saying something, something that they want out of their life or something that they think they would be really good at or something that they just need to scratch some sort of itch like I had with entrepreneurship nine or 10 years ago. That voice saying you're never going to really be satisfied in life unless you see if you have what it takes to blank. If you have that voice... There's no reason not to follow it because you can succeed if you care enough and if you're patient enough. So well said. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing with us, Corbett. Thanks so much for having me, Jess. And there you have it, guys. Thank you so much for listening. And Corbett, thank you for coming on the show. If you'd like to send Corbett a message about how much you love the show, please go over to Twitter. His handle is Corbett Barr. That's C-O-R-B-E-T-T-B-A-R-R. And again, as I mentioned on the show, if you think Fizzle's a fit for you, it's only a dollar to try for the first month. And if you use fizzle.co slash the lively show, please do this. I really, really do mean it. Send me the email confirmation that you get and ask me a question. I'm happy to do an ask me anything, which means you send me the question in three sentences and I respond to your question in three sentences. I'm happy to look at your website, look at your social media pages, your portfolio, whatever your question is, I'm happy to answer it. Thank you guys so much, and I'll see you next week.